Hello and welcome to Primary Immunodeficiency Questions and Answers. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. For children diagnosed with severe combined immunodeficiency, or SCID, treatment options are readily available. While many choose to undergo treatment, it is important to remember to follow up with your doctor afterward to avoid any issues that may occur. In this episode, we will be discussing the importance of long-term follow-up after receiving treatment. And now, let's begin. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode, The Importance of Long-Term Follow-Up After Treatment, part of the Skid Compass series. I'm your host, John Boyle. Severe Combined Immune Deficiency, or SCID, is a life-threatening primary immunodeficiency typically diagnosed just after birth. Fortunately, there's testing available for SCID through newborn screening in all 50 states, as well as Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. Early detection is critical for these children, as is the prevention of infection and early treatment. With early treatment, most children with SCID should be able to develop their own working immune system. The best course of treatment for a child with SCID depends on several factors, including the type of SCID, the child's health, and their doctor's recommendation. However, while most families tend to focus on the best course of treatment, such as hemipoietic stem cell transplantation or gene therapy, long-term care or follow-up is necessary to maintain a healthy life. Here with us to discuss the importance of long-term follow-up after treatment is Dr. Yolan Walter. Dr. Walter is the Division Chief of the University of South Florida in Johns Hopkins All Children's Pediatric Allergy and Immunology Programs. She is the Robert A. Good Endowed Chair of the USF Division of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology and an Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Medicine, and Molecular Biology in the USF Morsani College of Medicine. Dr. Walter has specific clinical expertise in the diagnosis and treatment of patients with SCID, in particular those with recombination activating gene or RAG variants. She's focusing on genetic evaluation and mechanism-based treatment therapies for non-infectious complications, and she's involved in the care of patients with definitive therapies such as hemipoietic stem cell transplantation and gene therapy protocols. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Walter. Uh, thank you so much, John. Um, it is one, such a wonderful opportunity to talk to you today. I enjoy working with you on Skid Compass, on early steps, and it's my pleasure to be here today to talk about long-term follow-ups and complications. Well, you've been a great partner to us uh, uh, over the years, and we're just appreciative of the fact that we can uh, have you talk to some of our listeners about uh, some of these areas that uh, can be a little confusing and that they always have interest in learning more about. So maybe to jump right in, can you describe the different types of treatments that are currently offered to someone who may be diagnosed with SCID? Yes, of course. First, we need to mention the immediate treatments that are happening right around birth for our patients. As both T and directly or indirectly B cells are affected, the patients will have high susceptibility for bacterial, fungal, and viral infections. And we are fortunate that maternal immunoglobulins are protective for a while, but we have to be prepared for these infections. In particular, the B cells will not make sufficient amount of antibodies. 
Therefore, we need to replace them early, either by intravenous or subcutaneous routes. It will certainly help us to avoid the bacterial infections. However, it is so much harder to correct the T cell function, to protect against certain viral and fungal and even opportunistic infections. So we use a lot of different agents. We call the, the, the antibacterial, antimicrobial agents such as acyclovir, fluconazole, and Bactrim. And during this time, some of our patients who have unique immune deficiencies, uh, such as adenosine deaminase deficiency, we can actually give, the, give them some replacement therapy. And this is so important to keep their immune cells healthy and safe until the patient is moving to this so-called more definitive therapy. And when we try to correct the problem, so we do a lot of things up front to keep our patients safe, and then they would be ready for the big day to actually get a more corrective definitive therapy. Well, speaking of more definitive therapies, uh, there are a few different types of them that are available for some different forms of SCID. So with that in mind, what factors would parents have to consider before choosing the best treatment option for their child, assuming that there you know, might be more than one. Uh, if you can walk us through maybe some of those sort of scenarios, uh, maybe dependent upon the type of skid. Yes, uh, so when we get to this um, long-term therapy, we have two main categories to consider. The first one is the classical treatment. We call it the allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant. It's a long name, but it basically tells us that we will correct the patient's immune problem with help from someone else. And we will infuse stem cells and let them seed the bone marrow to give rise to normal T and B cells. So there is a donor who is healthy and the recipient who is the patient who needs these immune cells. In, in contrast to that, uh, we have a second approach now called gene therapy when we actually correct the patient's own stem cells and then infuse it back. So this is sort of more compatible with the patient and for many reasons, um, this is a newer, more innovative, but very promising therapy that we all should know of. So when we think about these two therapies, there are several factors we need to weigh in. First of all, it is very important that you understand the genetic defect that your child has and beyond the actual faulty gene that is faulty, you also need to understand the exact abnormality in the code of the gene, basically where the position of this variant is in the gene. In some of these positions and variants is already published, there are disease causing and pathogenic. So the doctors can be with high confidence reassure you that this is exactly the reason of the problem. But sometimes the variant can be variant of uncertain significance. And then we have to pursue additional research to understand uh, how much it's connected to this disease. And it's very, very important to get this cleared because some of the gene therapy protocols are highly dependent on the gene and the variant and to have full understanding of that. So that's the first and very important step that you really need to understand in your child's health. The second one is the donor selection. Once we know what gene is affected and what are the options, uh, we can decide whether you, we want to go with a sibling who is fully matched, another family member, um, somebody who is unrelated, but they have very high HLA matching, like really nice matching in between your child and that person. Or sometimes the parents are the donors 
that have half of the genes matching up. So anyway, the last that is important matter is that your child has to be infection-free. Outcomes are much, much better when there is no ongoing infection. It can influence uh, the best approach. So that's something that we also need to understand. How much is your, your, your child at risk for infections and complications? These are probably the three most important first questions I would like to ask if I was a parent. Now, just to clarify, because uh, I know that some listeners here will be familiar with those kind of two modalities that you talked about, but others may be less so. The hemipoietic stem cell uh, uh, transplant, uh, or HSCT, uh, again, has been the classic version with gene therapy being a newer version. But gene therapy is, correct me if I'm wrong, a version of an HSCT. Is that correct? That is correct because you are basically repopulating the bone marrow with new stem cells. So in that sense, it is correct that you are doing the same process. Uh, the cells that are coming to the bone marrow in one case gonna be from someone else and that's the conventional method. And in the second case, it's gonna be from the patients themselves except that they're gonna be now corrected outside of the patient body and then reinfused to them. So that's correct. Well, I uh, just wanted to, uh, to to make sure that I was correct and also to walk everyone through it because again, there are uh, there are certainly similarities here, but then there's also differences uh, between, again, these kind of two, the classic and the, the newer uh, approach to doing this. So since we do have two different approaches here, can you talk a little bit about maybe the biggest risks for the two types of treatments uh, that you have previously described? Mm -hmm. Yes, for the conventional bone marrow transplant, uh, we have a high risk of GVHD, graft versus host disease. It's a long medical word, basically emphasizing that the patient who will receive those new stem cells from someone else will not fully compatible, they're not fully compatible with each other. And there could be a risk of the graft uh, attacking the host. And this can happen because of these uh, differences between the child and the donor. Therefore, these patients would need conditioning. It's a version of chemotherapy. Um, it is very important that the conditioning is as mild as possible, but still makes enough room for the stem cells to come in and seed the bone marrow. And um, the nice thing with uh, bone marrow transplantation is that we have a very long history of using these methods and we know what we are facing. GVHD is one of them. Uh, but there are some, of course, complications with gene therapy that we not fully understand since it's very novel. And what are those complications? At the beginning, gene therapy was high risk to, for patients to, to get uh, cancer, leukemias, and lymphomas. And we perfected the, the process of how to correct the gene, how to deliver it to the patient. So now we are at second and third and fourth generations. And these are less risky viruses. They are going to be more targeted in how they insert the, the needed part of the gen genome back to the patient. But there's always a risk of malignancy. So if I would contrast the two, I would say GVHD is a major risk for the conventional bone marrow transplant. Malignancy still remains a bit of a risk for gene therapy. And in both of those cases, there's a risk of no engraftment or loss of the graft. So we have to be ready to find a time if a patient is at risk of losing their graft and be prepared for it and, and make another in intervention. 
Well, with everything you've just talked about there, from graft versus host disease to the malignancies to the non-engraftment, and and I'm sure complications due to the uh, or potential complications due to the conditioning uh, or chemotherapy that's involved, can you walk us through a little bit of uh, splitting this up into maybe the short-term complications? You know, what might people have to uh, contend with in the hours, days, weeks, or months after uh, one of these two treatments versus the long-term, which maybe we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. But can you tell us about some of the more short-term complications or problems and uh, in, in terms of what you've talked about there or maybe other uh, things that may come after you've had uh, either an HSCT or, or a form of gene therapy? Mm-hmm. Yes, so there are several nuances of uh, the immunic constitution right after a bone marrow transplant. And when we talk about that, we actually talk about pre-transplant conditioning, then the transplant itself, the immune system is weakened. Uh, Many of the immune components are deliberately eliminated and that will create some disturbances in the patient's own body. Uh, The bone marrow will be a little bit underworking so the platelet count, the red blood cell count, even neutrophils can be low. And all of these decreased numbers will have clinical consequences. Some patients will have tendency for bleeding. Uh, some of them will develop ulcers in the mouth. And it is not universal. It is not a cookie cutter. It may happen or not happen. And they, these numbers will be monitored and treated accordingly. But again, the good news is that the immune system is recovering fast, and then these complications will be very transient in the patient's uh, life in the hospital. There are some chemotherapy agents that can cause transient hair loss. Uh, we can see rashes, sometimes uh, abdominal disturbances, diarrhea. And uh, whenever these things happen, we have a way to, to fight it, a way to control it. So unfortunately, these symptoms do occur, but we would attack them with the right therapy. Just one more thing, John, before I forget that I think infections is a a recurring theme and we have to make sure that these are also monitored. So patients who already have harbored some herpes viruses, they can flare with that. They can flare with adenovirus and those are also early complications of the transplant that have to be treated. Well, that is uh, (laughs) happily very clear. And, uh, but, you know, it it sounds kind of daunting uh, maybe to, to families who, are facing this, can you tell us a little bit, because you know, I, I kind of suggested that we split this up into these, the more short-term complications, and then maybe the longer-term complications. When we're talking about these potential uh, ulcers and you know the, the risk of infection and things like that, um, what is the timetable here for feeling like maybe, you know, you've reached a milestone or, you know, the, the family and the, the care team says, well, it looks like we're almost out of the woods. You know, is this after a week, after a month, after six months, after a year? What are the, the, the time frames that you as a clinician looks at and maybe communicates to the family to say, hey, after about this point, you know, you'll probably have less of these complications and, and more of these things will know where we stand or you'll probably be, be doing better with them. I would say that the first two weeks after the actual infusion of the stem cells is the most critical and that's when 
things can happen and escalate. So that's the time when you have to be very patient, but also very, very vigilant for the ulcers, for low platelet count. And then by the third week, we see both the platelets and the neutrophils nicely coming in. So that's sort of the expected um, book of, um, of known uh, reconstitution of the immune system. Some patients do it earlier, some patients do it a bit later. But I would say by probably the third week, you should be expecting things getting better and not to have complications of the bone marrow malfunctioning. Uh, GVHD can happen anytime. It can happen acutely. It can happen a little bit later. So those, those type of complications are a little bit harder to predict. But the bone marrow recovery and reconstitution, I would say regarding the neutrophils, platelets, and red blood cells should be occurring in the first three weeks. Well, perfect. Uh, I actually did learn a little bit new here because I knew something of the timing, but to be really honest, not all of it. So that is uh, enormously helpful for me and hopefully uh, helpful for our listeners too. So uh, with all of that said, and that's been a lot so far, uh, why don't we take a quick break here and we will talk more in just a couple of moments. No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. And welcome back. I am speaking with Dr. Yolan Walter about the available treatment options for children living with SCID. Now that we've discussed the types of treatment, uh, the uh, risks and the possible short-term complications, especially in those first few weeks, I'd like to transition over to talking about the long-term, uh, both uh, the, the long-term challenges as well as the real need for long-term follow-up after receiving one of these types of treatments. So Dr. Walter, uh, we've talked about the short-term complications that can occur directly after those treatments. Can you talk a little bit about some of the long-term complications that you and your colleagues are looking for, uh, either with uh, an HSCT or gene therapy or anything else along those lines? Yes, so the, the common long-term complication that I see the most is dependence on immunoglobulin. And what I mean by that is that our primary goal really in bone marrow transplant is to restore T-cell function. There is no other way to support a patient without fully restoring it in its own body. Whereas B-cell reconstitution could be highly desired, but if it doesn't happen, we just give immunoglobulins instead. So it is not uncommon um, that we would have to keep a patient for years or continued antibody or immunoglobulin infusions. And I, I wanted to emphasize it because some of our patients are used to this, they live with it. And I must say, it is not still what we want them to have for the rest of their lives. So it is always a complication that we want to correct if we can in future treatments. The second one that we have to keep in mind is including the loss of the graft. 
And that means that the stem cells that should be seeding the bone marrow and reconstituting the immune system cannot root up well. Or they did a little bit of that, like a, you know, a seed in the, in the ground, and then you get a little like green flowery piece, but then it starts to fade away. So we have to monitor that. We have to repeat testing. We have to see what is happening in the bone marrow, in the immune system. And we may have to do additional interventions. And then lastly, we have uh, GVHD. It can happen long-term too. It's very rare, but it's a great challenge. Some patients will be having uh, skin disease or GI disease, and we have to be prepared to calm the system down to make sure that they are protected, but their immune system is not overreacting to the graft. John, you asked about gene therapy, and I'm such a big proponent of gene therapy. I think it's our future, but there is still the risk of malignancy, and it cannot be neglected. It can happen decades after therapy, so this is something that we all have to keep in mind when we go for that treatment option. So, the issue and the question of malignancy is is one piece with gene therapy, but can you also speak a little bit about uh, uh, on the HSCT side, the the traditional side there, uh, the conditioning uh, that's used? Are there concerns uh, about the use of those chemotherapy agents there for the long term, either seen and recognized or suspected, uh, you know, over the long term? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a great question. So there are different schools of thoughts, especially if you think about European centers and the centers in the US about how early can we condition? Uh, We are talking about babies who were just born and Rusulfan is one of our favorite conditioning. And it is um, thought to have some effect possibly on neurological development long-term. So can we use Rusulfan conditioning safely? It's still yet to be determined. Uh, or the other agents could have their own like short-term and long-term side effects. I must say though that um, the field is moving forward very well and wisely and uh, busulfan is now tailored to the minimum needed dose with a lot of close monitoring of this pharmacokinetics. So yes, there is a lot of risk, uh, but I would say you have to put way in the pros and cons and trust your doctor's opinion because they are really aware of of that short-term and long-term complications of what they provide for you. So it's a, it's a very important intense conversation between the patient and the physician, but trust your physician also when they bring this to the table. Well, uh, trust your physician, always uh, <laughs> very sage <laughs> advice. Um, so, but uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about, again, the sort of you know long-term uh, follow-up, uh, you know, that, you know, after, whatever the the definitive treatment is and you kind of get to what we talk about as you know your new normal uh, as a family after the treatment um you know these are babies who are being treated and then they have you know 17 ish or so years uh, under the parents care um you know, in, in terms of pediatrics and, and everything else can you talk a little bit about what the sort of follow-up, is like, uh, you know, for for checking to make sure that there are no uh, very obvious, uh, you know, challenges in terms of the sort of long-term follow-up. Uh, how do you and your colleagues uh, who are treaters track 
these complications? And can you just talk a little bit about what the long-term follow-up uh, for a, uh, a patient uh, with SCID uh, tends to look like? So there is also some new terminologies here I would like to familiarize uh, the audience. In case of conventional bone marrow transplant, we actually track how are the donor cells replace the patient's own immune cell. And this is called chimerism. So we look at the ratio that of those T cells and B cells that the baby have, what fraction is actually still from the baby because there were leftover stem cells in the bone marrow from the baby that gave rise to these T cells and B cells. But how many are from this donor who is bringing on the new well-functioning T cells and B cells? And this chimerism is very important. It gives us an upfront information on how the immune system is holding up. If there is low B cell chimerism, it is not uncommon that we have to check immunoglobulin levels. And if they decline, the patient may need immunoglobulin replacement therapy. And we have seen that, and you probably will meet parents who have gone through this process. On the other hand, if you have worsening T-cell chimerism, it is of high concern because now this is pointing to a failing graph that we will not be able to correct with outside treatments. So what, what can we do to really have a close eye on the T-cells? We monitor the new naive T-cells coming out of the thymus. So we can have flow cytometry that assays from the blood of the child. And then we also see how they multiply, how T and B cells multiply with stimulation. And this is called the lymphocyte proliferation study. So these are the terms you want to know and the assays that you would like to track yourself with your doctor. And these are all important matters for discussion if there's a need for repeat transplant. Now, in contrast to this conventional chimerism studies in gene therapy, we cannot really do that assay because the patient is getting his or her own cells to be infused. And uh, we have to use this term called copy number variation, how many of the copies of this new corrected gene is in the cell. And if you talk to your doctors in research who are patients who will be in clinical trials or regular treatment, that's the number you want to follow for the immune cells. If it is high enough, we expect good function. Lastly, we need to be on the watch out for new infections. Sometimes we have patients coming up with warts later in life. We have to watch out for signs in the blood for malignancy that when the white blood cell kind shoots up super high and there are very early white blood cell types like blasts in the blood. And we have to be aware of other cancers such as breast cancer decades or years after the original transplant. So they could all be related to this original process and we have to watch it very, very carefully in the blood of the patient by clinical physical examination of the patient. And so with these, um, these examinations, the follow-ups uh, and the seemingly the blood work there. Um, is this done every three months, six months, year? Uh, you know, when is it that, that you as a, uh, uh, as a treater you know, are checking in with that patient and their family uh, to take a look at that? Uh, it is always um, a very ongoing conversation between families and us. We want our families to be seen at least every three to six months, even if um, 
the bone marrow function looks good and the patient is stable. At the very beginning, it's a very close follow-up. Once they get older, three or four years of age, when they have no problems at all, then we agree to see them once a year. Um, I must say that I tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side and I like to see them every six months just to be sure that I'm not missing something uh, within that one year. And it also depends on the family's education level, their vigilance. Um, if, if they have a really good pediatrician in the area, we can trust them to, to reach out to us within that year. If there is really no good uh, local support for their disease, then I may have to have them back a bit earlier, like every six months. Okay, and, and that makes sense. And again, uh, you know, what you uh, and, and your colleagues uh, at USF might do might be a little bit different than, uh, than what some others do, but it really depends on, on your approach to medicine and of course uh, the, the family circumstances. That makes perfect sense. Um, well, you talked about the sort of follow-up and, and kind of maybe getting to a, a slightly new phase once the patient gets to maybe three or four years old. Um, we have, as you mentioned much earlier, you know, with HSCTs especially, um, you know, multiple generations, uh, you know, of science and, and years of learning here. We have, of course, people with SCID who are, uh, you know, now uh, adults. So can you talk a little bit, because this is an issue for anyone who starts out as a pediatric patient and then goes on to dealing with their own care. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of transition um, point where a young adult is no longer under their parents care and no longer necessarily part of the sort of pediatrics universe uh, and how they should be handling or looking at this sort of long-term follow-up um, you know when they are officially out on their own and uh, and and having to be more responsible uh, you know for scheduling those appointments and uh, and and interacting with you or their uh, their clinician uh, you know as again a young adult. Yes, John, transition is actually the hardest part uh, for any, any of us. And it happens in so many other specialties, cardiac transplant, oncological disorders. We have such a hard time letting our patient go and go into the medicine field, but we have to be prepared to make that transition. And we have to educate our colleagues in medicine to take good care of our patients that we really pampered and you know, kept very close to us for, uh, within those years of pediatric care. Um, but the patient also has an important role in this. They have to be ready to own their condition, even if they are perfectly fine. Some of them may not be on immunoglobulin at all. They have to have some level of alert and vigilance. They have to know that they can have a declining immune function and at any time it could come with infections, autoimmunity, lymphoproliferation, which means that the lymph nodes get big or the spleen gets big or cancer. And if they don't get the regular monitoring of the lab work, sometimes the clinical signs will be the first sign to bring it to the attention of the clinician. But we always advise against that. We always say, come regularly, establish care with your doctors, do the blood work at least every six months once a year, and then that way we can catch it in time, not when you are escalating to all these disorders. You know, technology is improving. There are new opportunities to revisit your disease. Um, I mentioned that immunoglobulin is something that many of our patients receive, but it shouldn't be for the lifetime. There may be some new avenues to revisit the 
correction of the immune system. And I think gene therapy will be one of them. So please stay tuned for innovation, for new avenues, and continually be vigilant um, of your health and of your science. Well, points all well taken there. Um, and you know, you, you talked a little bit there about kind of what it should look like. Can you just tell us from your own practice uh, and, and experience here, have you uh, seen and, and interacted with patients who have sort of made this leap, uh, you know, from pediatric to working with you and your colleagues as a young adult? And, um, you know, how has that looked like? Do you, are there any uh, good case scenarios here of uh, good communication from the parents to them to now you and, and kind of getting into a, a new rhythm uh, as they then take on that sort of um, you know, onus of being responsible for dealing with that long-term follow-up and, and working with you and, and with the other members of their care team? Yes, um, we see all sorts of walks of life in our practice. And I think we have to be humble to relate to them, to empathize with these families and try to educate and support them as much as we can. I'm very grateful to be the part of the team at USF and Johns Hopkins or Children's. We diagnose newborn screenings, kids, we treat them and uh, we, we walk them through bone marrow transplant, some of them through gene therapy in collaboration with other centers. So that's, it's really an amazing journey and I'm, I'm always glad to be the part of it. Uh, but I did have, yes, several cases where years away from uh, bone marrow transplant patients have failed their graft. They had been on immunoglobulin and we had to divert their care into a collaborative clinical trial. And these patients are now doing great um, of immunoglobulin, uh, receiving live and non-live vaccines and hopefully going back to their real social life as uh, young children. Uh, I am following young adults with ADS kids who have been still partially reconstituted and they need immunoglobulins, they are on enzyme replacement therapy. So I would say it's not a full success story, but they are in colleges, they are having a good life. But what it tells me is that this is where we are now, this is how far we could do with the immune reconstitution, but we could supplement them with everything else. And we are diagnosing patients with variants of skid called combined immunodeficiency as adults. I just had a diagnosis a few months ago of a young adult in the area, and we will be bringing them to transplant in collaboration with the NIH and the Muffet. So there's a lot of different flavors, different colors, and it is so exciting to the, be the part of this journey for these patients. Well, so it is a journey and uh, we are still in the middle of it as we're learning and uh, and as you and, and your colleagues are treating and, and using the newer technologies to basically make better lives for these patients. So I think that's a pretty good note to uh, end on. So Dr. Walter, I just wanted to say that it's been a pleasure having you uh, join us here today to talk about skid treatments and uh, both short-term and long-term uh, issues. And then of course, the long-term follow-up. So just wanted to say thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure. And I, I feel honored that I, I had this opportunity with you, John. Have a wonderful day. And many thanks to all of our listeners for being with us today. We hope that you'll join us for more podcast episodes like this one in the future as we explore the topics that mean the most to you. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, 
you're never alone. There's always people who want to help. We all just have to find each other. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. The Skid Compass series is supported by a grant through the Health Resources and Service Administration, or HRSA, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. And leave us a review on iTunes so others will discover this podcast. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. For more information on SCID, visit www.skidcompass.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at info at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.